Welcome to Your Money with DeWitt Capital Management, a show about investing, the markets, life, and everything in between. David DeWitt Jr. and Sr. and Scott Frank will share what they've been reading and listening to and what the trends are in the market. All opinions expressed in the show are solely the opinions of Dave, Dave, and Scott or any guest on the show and do not reflect the opinions of DeWitt Capital Management. All content within the podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decision-making. Yeah, Roku is great. Roku's, remember when Roku was just a, 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 a doubted sort of like little plastic thing you plug into your TV yes. company and now yes. it's a huge advertising behemoth, behemoth? I don't understand their business model, how they make money, but I know the stock is- Ever, It's advertising. Yeah, there's commercials. So like, you know, uh, what'll happen is like, you'll be watching a program. The problem is like with the, with the one channel, like you actually have to add on other programs if you want more content. Right. And that's where the subscription comes in. But you know, there are commercials, uh, between, you know, between the segments. So that's how they're paying for it. Yeah. So they, so they get a piece of the action. They get a piece oh, yeah. of, they get a piece of that for sure. I mean, if it's on if the, if you're talking about the Roku channel itself. Well, there's a Roku channel. I mean, I have a Roku. I have a, I have a Roku. So, 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 on every TV. Yeah, Davey. So what it is, it's like it, the Roku is actually the platform to access. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To all these different channels and different things. And then what you can do is like, if you want just like Bravo channel, it's an upcharge. Right. And yeah, it's all yeah, connected yeah, to, yeah. it's yeah. all connected to Wi-Fi. So like if I wanted to eliminate my cable box, I could do that and just pay for internet. Um, and then maybe because for the Roku, you can then go to um, Sling, YouTube is there, and then I connected all my Netflix and Amazon Prime TV. So it's a great, um, it's a great little thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, so like they make money from like every time someone buys like a like a like a Bravo, for instance, that's subscription. Yes. You know, Roku's getting a piece of that because it's on their platform. Yeah. So they get money from that. And I'm wondering, they, get- they must get they must get something from like when somebody actually buys the TV. So we got for our daughter one for her uh, for her birthday last month a little flat panel. I mean, not that big, and it's a Roku installed TV. That's what the whole point of it is. And so when you turn it on, uh, it's a very simplistic. Um, it, it's brilliant, actually. The TV it, it's a t- cheap TV. But like TCL, was it a TCL? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I have two of them. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like you know, I don't think it's gonna last five years, but you know, for like one fifty, it's super simplistic uh, navigation on the remote control, super easy, and all the apps are there to watch whatever you want. It's 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 amazing. Yeah, it is. Amazing. There's even local channels, but like it's a little bit different. It, it's very specified, um, um, you know, programming for that. It's it's not. Um, not exactly the same, but you could operate without a cable box. Oh yeah, for sure. It's cool. Um, but yeah, I'm looking. Roku generates seventy percent uh, of its of its revenue is from uh, advertising. Yeah, and media profits, so like that kind of stuff. And it's only so only thirty percent is coming from hardware sales, which was always not the end game for them. That was just the yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And then you can just if you want Bravo TV or whatever channel just you know you subscribe to it for whatever and it's uh it's there so it's cool yeah 
um, but they have so much data now that they can sell data on like uh, consumer preferences and all sorts of stuff. So they, I mean, they, they've got all sorts of avenues for monetization, um, Amazing. which they're clearly doing. Um, so it's very interesting. That's, I mean, I'm very interested in the ad tech space and there's a bunch of names I'm very into. Roku's one that I never really, you know, fully Roku dived into. But that's because I think Roku just went so far ahead of me that I just was like, yeah. And that, wasn't that like, that was a couple years ago. Was that like the fashionable stock to have? Well, shit, it's done amazing since last Oh my year. God, Roku is amazing. It is expensive as all get out because no its growth is insane. But I mean, it's, wow. it's a stock where like- What is it at you know, now? It's at 448. Oh my God. Last it's time a I stock, looked at it a month ago, it was 200. It's a stock where um, Holy it's shit. just on, it's got- Enormous growth, but enormous momentum, enormous uh, um, multiple expansion. Well, they don't even really make money yet. So, you know, their forward PE is like infinite and they um, just keep crushing it. Uh, I just love it, man, because it's simple. It's like a remote control that's got like six buttons. Half of them are app buttons. So if you can quickly get to yeah. Netflix or something yeah. and um, yeah, we, it's just simple. Yeah. We, we have a Roku in every, pretty much every room in our house and we have, Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. And we, and, um, so, so and Davey, I, I, I assume, I assume, I assume the channels are the same. It's channel 520 is what I've been watching. Okay. Well, so we have Xfinity, but there's actually a Roku app for Xfinity where you can just watch your Xfinity cable on the Roku app. And that That's way right. you don't have to pay for the, you don't have to rent the cable box. So you don't have to rent, uh, so it makes your cable oh, bill less nice. expensive. So I can just stream. I can stream all my recordings ah, and everything from these. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really nice. So I'll just do that. Um, yeah. Any. So uh, I, yeah. Any, um. But yeah. Ro, I mean, Roku. 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 It's one of those stocks, man. And like, there's people that just buy Roku because it's, it's the they just say that it's one of those companies. Like this is what Kathy Wood was saying the other the other in one of the interviews about like a Roku. She's saying. The reason why it's got this valuation is because like its opportunity is so immense that it's just going to constantly be growing into its valuation, like how Amazon did. And Amazon never really suffered like a monumental collapse. So it is, um, is Roku so and, and Arc? A-R-K-K, do you know? It, oh is my God. Yeah. It's like they're, it's like her maybe fourth biggest position. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see, you know, one thing that's interesting is Amazon, while she says that, Amazon did like never had, you know, it grew into its valuation over for so long. It's, it, it had the benefit of having the most ripe <laughs> economic environment to be able to just grow into a huge valuation. Let's see what like a Roku does. If there is a big spike in inflation and, and multiples get compressed, we'll see if it is the same story. Yes. I don't think like Amazon hasn't even really been tested in a quite drastically different environment, at least since like, the Great Recession. All right, we'll be back in 10 seconds to talk about inflation. $1.9 trillion more coming of stimulus. And I guess the thought is, are we pouring more fuel into a fire that's really heating up? People will be getting back to life as it was before. And then there's spending that comes with that. And Plus the 1.9 trillion, and then maybe like an infrastructure bill. I mean, are we just setting ourselves up for inflation, or are there some factors that will keep it at bay? 
Yeah, I think you have to look at the, the balance sheet, but grew $3 trillion last year. Um, so what is that? Is that more than more than the entire stimulus the last, I guess, since the time of 08, right? Um, is, is, that, is that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so basically in one year, we, we, uh, we grew it by, uh, by a magnitude, you know, more than, um, um, you did in the, in the last 10 or 12 years. So, um, which is pretty in, in crazy to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at like the, the global borrowing, uh, for, you know, for this pandemic, you know, almost 20 trillion of stimulus efforts. So, um, you can kind of see why it's on everybody's mind. So the yeah. global the global borrowing of nineteen and a half trillion dollars to combat COVID. Where does that wind up? I mean, is that how does that factor into inflation down the road? Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of the the dynamic is, you know, everyone inflation maybe will come down the road but what is what's it going to be doing in the more near term and also looking at the factors that have kept inflation so low for the past 20 years or 10 years especially um you know are those are some of those are systemic and they're not necessarily going away either um so if we look at some of the reasons for inflation and one thing to keep in mind is that there's definitely going to be mathematical inflation coming soon as we anniversary the uh crash in march so you're gonna have to snap but i think um people are getting well prepared for that and it shouldn't come as a huge surprise when those headlines are recorded but um one of the one of the outspoken guys who's saying that we're going to have really serious inflation sooner rather than later is larry summers um, and he just thinks the stimulus will lead to a massive overheating of the economy. And he thinks it'll, the, um, it'll force the Fed not just to taper, but to hike rates in disruptive ways. What would be examples of that? Um, just hiking rates quickly. I think that would be a disruptive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the rate of change of rates, if that goes quick, then you're, you would see some serious volatility, I think. Because if you remember in 2013, just the hint, just, I mean, just the hint of it can throws markets into a crazy tantrums, as we've seen taper tantrums throughout history. And 2013 was one for sure that is in people's minds. Yeah, I think the saying goes, "What uh, a bull market doesn't die of old age; the Fed kills it." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that Why everyone that, that that would be uh, that could be <laughs> that could be something to look for. And we did, it does seem ripe now for for. Fed meetings to become much more focused every time one rolls around is you start seeing more and more um, sort of data that comes out that's a little bit more supportive of coming inflation. The market's going to start in the news cycle. It's going to start focusing more on what that is saying and looking for that slight little hint or the, the slight little more hawkishness coming from the Fed that can spark some definite coming volatility. And I think if you've also seen, you know, commodity index, commodity related investments have ticked up, you know, have ticked up this year. Um, 
And, you know, that I can, I guess is, you know, investors are eyeing it for certain. And, um, you know, there is, you know, a number of people out there expecting that. So I think that would be, uh, you know, goes hand in hand with these types of thoughts. During the whole last decade, commodities are underperformed. And while the stock market was reaching new highs, the commodities were a funk, you know, oil, energy, all commodities in general. But, you know, I guess it's about October, you know, we see the big spike in energy. We saw uh, Warren Buffett take a $4.6 billion stake in Chevron. I think Tepper uh, also uh, increased holdings in energy. And, you know, you've seen that reaction um, in commodities. And, and I guess that, uh, I mean, generally speaking, during the inflationary period, I believe commodities do well. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that towards the end of this when we talk about, you know, what to do about this. But let's continue on the, the topic of um, the reasons for inflation coming. And we had, um, and so there is the thought, the one side of the coin, where now there's like in, elevated tantrum risk um, that the, the, the environment is becoming fertile for, for volatility or bond market sell-offs. And, um, and, and it's, it's all about timing and no one can really know when that's going to happen. But I guess one natural logical timing thought is, you know, if the economy reopens and there's a, a huge higher than expected surge in demand, um, then you have all of this supply I think there's a lot of money supply that is sitting, creating the fertile ground for some sort of inflation spike. Well, I think traditional economics would tell you that when you increase the number of dollars floating around in circulation, each dollar is worth less, which translates into higher prices of everything. So commodities being one thing, but if you look back and, um, I can look back and remember in early 1980s when inflation was running at 17, 18% per year, Volcker hiked interest rates to you know, levels you know, we hadn't seen up to like 17, 18% and that killed inflation. Um, I hate to get into that scenario. I, I think more than just the money supply, I think it really then depends on the velocity, right? So I think the money supply is the one aspect, but then the velocity of it has to be uh you know, has to increase where the changing of hands throughout the economy, right? I think that's really where you start to see the inflation pick up. So, um, you know, just, um, you know, spending money on, on, on bills or paying down debt uh, to improve personal balance sheets or corporate balance sheets that way. Yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily turnover. Um, I think, you know, you have to actually get people spending, yeah. right? That's not, yeah, that's not, that's not money going into the economy, right. uh, simulating um, activity and demand and creating and creating um, the necessary force for some inflationary pressure, for sure. That's right. um, so, and that sort of leads into like, you know, what are, besides a potential surge in demand, I mean, there's still things that are very de- deflationary pressures that remain. Um, and like what Powell, like Powell's reason for being still dovish is like, look, the economy is still not doing great in terms of, you know, unemployment. Um, he thinks we're at 6.3 unemployment, percent unemployment, and the real unemployment rate's more like 
And so he says that, you know, the, the, the rise in consumer prices that we've seen is not reason for panic yet. And I'm also curious to see what sort of um, how retail spending and spending looks once all the stimulus is out of our systems. Yeah. And it's, will it overwhelm? Will it underwhelm? Right. Is it going to snap back as per expectation or will, I mean, if you look at the kind of the savings rates of, of homes, right. Of, of people. Um, uh, I think I, I heard the last statistic was like, it was in the teens. That's similar to like Asia or China, I believe. Uh, normally I think it's in like in the mid single digits as far as how much a household saves. So we still have yeah. like, what's that? Two or three X, uh, you know, uh, increase in, in savings. So until, until you pass that through and, and you increase, you know, that turnover, um, you know, it could be a situation where, um, you keep, you keep inflation at bay for some time. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if that is the current, um, savings rate, then the assumption that that's going to decrease the people are going to spend more is still just an assumption. It's not, I mean, you can, it's grounded on, you know, logic, I guess, but it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to go right back out and spend right away. So that remains to be seen. Yes. yes. Um, there's another whole, there's a whole other side of thinking. So you have Larry Summers, who says the stimulus is overheating, but then you have someone like Paul Krugman, who's arguing that it's not stimulus, it's more of a rescue effort, which changes the uh, price dynamics in unpredictable ways. And he, he says it's more of like a disaster relief or fighting a war. And that this is a, a this is so unprecedented that um, is 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 that you're we're still just trying to heal, as, as opposed to we're now we're now stimulating into sort of the next phase of you know demand. So that's an interesting yes take as well. So it's also still, yeah, and then because so yeah, sorry, yeah. still deflationary. Yeah, yeah, and I guess there's some lessons from Japan too. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't really studied Japan in, in any big way, but I guess they are almost still fighting deflation and they've been doing huge stimulus for years and years and years. Um, you know, they've unleashed countless account. And I read that this was an article in Forbes from a guy who's a reporter in Japan and he's, and he's, he was arguing against, you know, any huge inflation coming saying that, um, they've unleashed dozens of public stimulus packages. They were small and they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And in his opinion, because um, Tokyo took so long to get serious, deflation is still a feature there. I think for 30 years, right? That could be something that we find ourselves in, some type of similar scenario, right? Yeah. It's almost like what Northern Trust has been saying and is continuing to to say, and they they, they coin it stuckflation. Um, They still believe that we're going to be in stuckflation for some time. And some of the reasons are more of those systemic reasons that, deflation had already existed or low inflation, not deflation, but, you know, muted inflation. And the big reason, at least that I certainly understand is the technological advances, the increasing use of technology by consumers and companies um, continue to have a significant impact on keeping it at bay. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at the price of a computer uh, 10 years ago to today or price of a TV and, you know, things, I mean, you know, they've only been going down, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's it's mind blowing how inexpensive certain things are that you can buy. Like you can buy, like a 4K, um, like action camera, like a Go- like a GoPro alternative on Amazon for forty bucks. Yes. 
I mean, it's, yes. it's nothing. I mean, it's, Take a look it's at nothing. the price of lumber, though. You know, that uh, the housing boom that's been occurring, housing prices have gone up and are still going up. So fundamental commodities are doing the opposite. And I think also yeah. some of that's probably supply chain issues too, right? Because of, of yeah. COVID and everything like that. So supply chains, maybe, you know, we're going to have to come more into some type of proximity and that will, that will alter, you know, pricing yeah. and availability too. Yeah. We'll have to see what the environment is after once supply chains normalized. I mean, it seems like lead times for a lot of different products are really long right now. Manufacturing is still behind and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm getting a new garage door and it's, you know, I have to wait two months to get it because they're the main, the factory is so, uh, so backed up with orders. Wow. wow. So get, getting back to what I think we were talking about earlier, that the savings rate has gone way up. The spending rate has not gone up so much. Therefore the velocity of the money is low. Hence mm-hmm. low inflation. Yes. I mean, right. yes. Yeah, I, mean, I think I remember reading that in Economics 101. Yeah, yeah. It has to. It has to change hands multiple times for it to accelerate and yeah, turn inflationary. I, I just think people are cautious after COVID and after the you know the Great Recession. They're just they're just being conservative, um, and so they're trying to bolster up their balance sheets and save more. And that's ultimately, I think, that's a, a good thing. The Northern Trust article talks about um, aging, the aging population. Um, and I'd, I'd like to spend just a second on that. Um, they say the U.S. life expectancy has risen from 70.8 in 1970 to 78.8 today. Although I did note on the news last night that it did drop a, uh, one year based on COVID. Um, while the fertility rate has fallen from 2.48 to 1.8. Um, which means uh, less new people coming into the world to replace the old people. However, the millennials, and I guess we'll get into that later, but the millennials are now a larger cohort than the baby boomers themselves. So we got to leave it up to the millennials now to, to increase spending and productivity. But, you know, the, but the, the large, you know, the boomers who have been, who have been powering the economy for so long, you know, they are going to be going into that spend less phase. So there, you know, there's going to be a, there's a handoff happening. I know, uh, I know Scott, you've done a little bit of interesting research on, um, on sort of these large um, generational cycles. Yeah. um, I think um, kind of, as per some reading, if you look at kind of like generational cycles kind of changing in like 40 year increments. So, um, so I think, you know, um, and it kind of Did coincides you say 40 or four, four is four zero. And I think 40. And it coincides okay. also with like, you know, um, like I don't know it coincides where we've seen, um, you know, some kind of recessionary pressures. So if you kind of go back the last 40 or call it 80 years, so from 1942 to 82 and then, you know, to 22, it, it kind of dovetails nicely into kind of the silent generation going, handing off the baton to the baby boomers. And then, you know, now handing off the baton to, uh, call it the millennial Gen Xer, um, uh, demographic, right? So, um, the next, the next demographic needs to, 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 
bring a tick up in, in that spending and productivity uh, to keep uh, to keep the overall growth rate of, of the country alive and growing, right? So the millennials are born from what, 1981 to 1996? Is that what it is? Yes. Millennials, uh, 81 and 96. It de- yeah. depends on some will go back to 1980, but, um, but yes, kind of in that general area. Right. So, so those people are born in those, those ranges, certainly in the older set. Uh, so call it towards the 80, 81, you know, are now, you know, principally around 40 or so and are in the most productive years of, of their life in the next 20 years, yeah. right? Now, Scott, you saw, you noticed that there was some big contractions that happened around the time or some handing off. Yeah, was going yeah on. exactly. So if you look at, you know, 42 and 82, both saw, uh, you know, recessionary forces, right? Um, and if you kind of extend out 40 years from 82 it's 22 right 2022 so next year um i don't know if that suggests anything or forecasts anything but it does seem like this time period where you're in this handoff right um or the you know the conclusion of one demographic's productivity and the start of another demographic's productivity yeah and is there could there be there could be some softness in between there for the yes correct Correct. And I don't think it helps with, you know, the backdrop of COVID with that transition. Right. Um, so, um, so just something to kind of an observation to be mindful of and to, uh, uh, to keep on your radar. So being, being a baby boomer, uh, when the baby boomers were coming through and I was in my thirties and forties and, you know, we were buying houses and buying cars and buying washing machines and becoming very productive at work. And, you know, saving for college education and investing. And, you know, it, that through, you know, the economy, we had this great bull market that went from, you know, the 1982 timeframe to the end of 2000. And I'm just noticing with the increase in housing prices, at least around our area, I, I've seen an increase in housing prices of between 12 and 15% just outside of Philadelphia. And it's, this feels, it feels like it did, 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So it could be the beginning of not only commodities, but housing and I mean, inflation and all sorts of things where the demand is going to go, go up. I mean, you know, it's going to go up. Yeah. So let's talk about quickly. The third point from Northern trust is that, you know, while there may be a spurt of inflation, you know, there they would argue that the the extraordinarily high level of U S government debt means that over the long over time, I mean, as it becomes more of a central focus, that means the government's got to focus a lot more at some point on limiting spending and trying to moderate their the, the U.S. balance sheet, which is which will also help inflation stay muted because they're not going to have the capacity to keep, um, you know, spending and spending and spending and spending. Yeah, I think the more you have to service that, the less you're going to be able to uh, to spend and invest, and so. Uh, you know, it should keep it in inflation in check, but it also means that, you know, could be in for a period of sluggish growth without, without increased uh, spending and investment productivity. Yeah. Um, so the, there's, and honestly, as I was just doing a little bit of research, I mean, I, I was finding a lot more arguments 
against it coming inflation than for inflation. A lot of articles that are more saying like to try and tune out some of the alarmist inflation calls. And another one that was was good and the the point from this Bloomberg article was was that where was inflation when the economy was so strong, you know, under you know President Trump, um, when unemployment was at three point five percent, inflation was still very muted. So was it inflation been since oh nine? I mean, you had unprecedented spending then too, not to the level you see now. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't, I don't know, I don't think it came through in any great way then either. So yeah. So I mean, once we so there so to me, just because I think change is just fundamentally slow, I would, my feeling was that once you get through some of the noise of the different headline numbers this year from the snapback and we get back to normal and everyone, there's a surge of demand and maybe there's some volatility and everyone's saying inflation. My sense is that it's going to kind of moderate again and it's not going to be anything crazy, but who knows, I mean, who knows, of course, we need to talk about the very long-term situation where uh, after 20 years of inflation, of no inflation, where, I mean, at some point we have to expect that it's going to rear its head. It makes sense. There's more room for upside than in his downside, I would say. Yeah. And um, I guess we think a lot a lot, a lot about asset allocation for the next 20 years, not just thinking about the next year, 12 months or 24 months, or even like four or five years, but like the next 10, 15, 20 years, uh, is there going to have to be some changes to think about making? Yeah. I mean, one of the big ones that we're looking at and it pick up, picks up the thread from this entire discussion. So if you look at if you look at balance sheets from the consumer to companies to governments, if you look at uh, spending, productivity, uh, investment, if you look at demographics, I think it does point to um, markets outside of the U.S., right? Particularly those in emerging markets. And I know we've discussed these before in previous podcasts. So if you look at them, those, these emerging markets, you have the demographic, you have a young population. Um, spending, uh, you have productivity, uh, you don't have the same kind of, of, of deficits and spending that uh, would um, decrease investment uh, into, um, into, these, into these markets. So, so we're strongly thinking um, that even though we do have emerging market exposure, it probably needs to be a, a bigger portion of all the equity exposure. Yeah. Now, right. who now who is this most important for? Because like me, I'm 30. Um, if I like to invest in U.S. and I like to go sort of on the aggressive high growth over 30 years, I'm probably fine. That's right. I will. I will be fine. Right. But yeah. there's a whole host of people that may have really enjoyed what's been going on that really need to think carefully about the next phase. I mean, yes. uh, they may have been riding passive funds in the U.S. and doing been doing really well. But let's just say that if you're if, if 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 someone who's retiring in five years has been in passive funds in the U.S. and is you know and so naturally their weighting is really heavy in tech and then let's say we have inflation that rears its head you know sooner than you know even we're maybe thinking um, that could really throw off 
you know, what the good that they've had going for them quickly. Yeah. quickly. I, I think ge- geography, but also if you see rates move up um, also between growth and value stocks because of discounted cash flows, right? So you would, you know, those tend to be more in favor for, for value oriented stocks or companies that have uh, really strong current cash flow, right? So, so yeah, I think in the next couple of years here, um, you got to really start think hard about where your allocation is. And then even within that allocation, meaning geography uh, and assets, but also kind of the, the kinds of sectors and the kinds of uh, styles you're investing in, right? Uh, because we could see this shift um, that right. um, it's really going to impact, you know, the next uh, you know, ten to twenty years yeah, for sure. Yeah, because the 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 risk is increasing. The more and more that these comp- these tech companies become bigger weightings in these indexes, um, which is based on their fundamental growth, but also has been on expanding you know, valuation multiples, it becomes a bigger and bigger risk for people's portfolios. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to go, if we're going to enter a phase of of work a, com- a commodity bull cycle, I mean, there's going to be there's going to be profit growth in areas that have not had it and there's going to be rotation and there's going to be a lot of multiple expansion there too. So, and that's going to come, you know, logically and likely at the, at the expense of what's been doing really well in this uh, more tranquil inflationary environment where everyone's looking for growth at any cost. Right. Things that people have ignored for, you know, better part of more than a decade, I guess, you know, could become quite fashionable, right? Baskets of commodities, real assets, treasury, uh, in, or call it inflation protective securities, uh, infrastructure investments. Um, Banks. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so I think, you know, you have to kind of look at where your exposures are and, and take a, a hard look and, and make sure that you're not going to be too underexposed to some of these things that, um, you know, if we see a continuance of a deflationary type of environment or call it a depression in the sense of just subtrend growth, uh, and then at the other end of it, if you see a reflation or an inflation environment, how are you position there? So yeah, um, I don't think it's super straightforward. Yeah. And if you have an, an advisor, it's a great time just to ask them, you know, about, about how they're thinking about the next um, 10, 15 years from an asset right. allocation perspective and just see if they're and bring up some of these points and just see if they're thinking about it and if they're and if they're um, have a plan for you. That's right. That's right. Well, that, you know, that talking about uh, people making investments in areas that have been sort of ignored for a while. Uh, Warren Buffett, I think I mentioned earlier, makes a $4.8 billion investment in Chevron. Dave Tepper is, you know, investing in Occidental and in energy transfer. And, um, you know, commodities have been dead for a decade. And, um, you know, you're starting to see a real interest there. It might be just the beginning of that cycle. And the other side of this equation is if we do um, get the dollar to decline, which could very likely happen or is happening. Uh, investing overseas makes sense. And I think most US investors are under um, exposed to uh, overseas investing. And I, I know we've spoken about before, but 
areas of the world where they're getting their first smartphone or going from the dark ages to the current state of the art, that will dramatically increase their productivity and ability to uh, get things done. Uh, Scott, I think you've mentioned um, you know, some of those dynamics. I wonder if now's a, a time to talk about that. Um, yeah, and I, th I think also, um, I mean, you know, look at if you look at where the biggest population of people under thirty is. I mean, um, I think what eight eight out of ten of of those of those people are sitting in the emerging markets, right? Um, the other thing to look at too is from a currency perspective. So, you know, as we continue to debase or um, devalue. Uh, the dollar with 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 printing um, on a relative perspective that makes other currencies uh, more valuable. So you kind of get this uh, double effect when you're investing in in these countries, assuming they're not hedging the dollar. Uh, you're exposed to those currencies in in those markets where it's gaining. So you kind of get you know um, an, an added benefit there. So it's a relative value because of the valuation, and then also because of the growth prospects, right? So um, it's something, it's something to, to, to take notice of and to seriously consider. Now, the one country that comes to mind where the demographics were great and where productivity should increase rapidly and where the population is gigantic and where the population is young is India. Yep. Anything specific to say about India as an emerging growth market? Um, it's a bit of a loaded question, I guess. Um, it is loaded. I agree. I, sort of... I, I think I would point to uh, if um, uh, the city, the city analogy is the best. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I don't have this exact thing. This is what I heard about five or six years ago, but it's something like where you have um, the population that's based in in the rural areas going towards urbanization uh, to account for that um, that that flow. You're going to need to build. I can't remember. It's something like fifty to eighty cities the size of Chicago, or something like that, to to accommodate that type of um, migration, right? So, um, you know, that, that tends to do well for infrastructure for sure. Well, it cuts across every every sector, really, right? So, uh, and I think you know the statistic is I think we mentioned this on a previous cast. Um, out of out of ten people that are under the age of what thirty. 25 to 30, I think two in 10 sit in India, right? So uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's pretty relevant, right? So, um, so yeah, there's a lot to do, uh, a lot of opportunity out there. It's, um, uh, it's very interesting. And uh, I think uh, more people need to, you know, consider it and um, put some work around it. For sure. I mean, yesterday, we were having a conversation with a friend of ours who, sort of the world traveler and could see um, how things are operating in a worldwide environment. And, and I mean, his conclusion was you got to diversify overseas at particularly at this point. And um, you, know, you should be talking to your advisors about way of, of doing that. Thanks for listening. If you want a question highlighted on the show or have any comments or feedback, shoot us an email at yourmoneydoit at gmail.com. See you on the next one.